First John jumping right in the middle of a passage and you know when you only teach once in a blue moon um, Drew and I uh, have a an agreement that he, he'll teach a book and then I'll teach a book and I told him when we made that agreement to pick Isaiah or something you know that would take three or four years and uh, he he chose the book of Acts which hopefully it'll take three or four years but and, just kidding but anyway um, you know when I'm just stepping in you're going we usually when somebody just does teach every now and again the people are going to receive what you know is perhaps on the hearts of the teacher and things that I've been working through personally myself so that's what we're going to look at this morning we're going to read first John uh, chapter 1 verse uh, chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 2 so not a whole lot there so we're really going to look at verse 9 and then verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 so first John 1 9 it says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, very interesting in verse 9, right, if we confess our sins. And confession if you think about it, of sin is, is absolutely crucial to entering into the light that he was talking about in verse 8, which another word for entering into the light would be what? I would call it justification, but what else? What else could be considered entering into the light? And confession is absolutely crucial to entering into that realm. What's the common word we use? Salvation, right, yeah, salvation. So confession of sin is absolutely crucial to entering the light and walking in it. And what would we call walking in the light? Justification then? Sanctification, right. So it's an ongoing thing is what I'm getting at there. And the Psalms are filled with with confessions, aren't they? I mean, I just love that, you know, that... uh, Well, I won't go there. But the Old Testament is full of the meanings of the New Testament, right? And, and we see confession of sin a lot in the Old Testament of believers. For instance, turn to Psalm 51. Let's just read uh, verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 51, honing in on this, uh, this idea of confession being necessary for uh, justification initially, but then as well as our sanctification. And, and while we're turning there, just, you know, think of this, that with sanctification, we, we positionally are sanctified if we have been justified, right? I mean, positionally we're there, but we all agree that, that the sanctification process is, is also that. It's a, it's a progression throughout life. Hopefully today I am more sanctified than I was yesterday, right? So the sanctification is progressive, but positionally it's a done deal. Because what does it mean? You know, I mean, I, that's what, what does sanctification even mean? 
sin. Apart from sin, that's right. Being separated apart from sin. Well, that's a done deal, but as we'll see, how, why it's progressive as we go through this. It, positionally, it's done, but it is progressive as well. So the life of David, um, you know, we know the story here in 51, but it, and this is, I'm sure, very familiar to you as it is to me, but it's such a refreshing thing for me anyway to go back to the familiars as I walk my Christian life, you know, to, to uh, I, I'm... I'm kind of a simple guy, and I, I just like to I get on something. You know, I have my favorite passages, and this is certainly one of them. That, and it, it refreshes me to reiterate. Maybe that's the way to say that. So Psalm 51, first nine verses. David writes, this is after his great sin of uh, adultery and murder, basically. But have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my all my iniquities. And he goes on and asks for God to create a clean heart in him. Well, that's an Old Testament testimony of confession of sin. And the New Testament includes similar expressions, right? John the Baptist, he preached repentance with evidence of, of, of it being necessary to entering into God's kingdom, right? There won't be any unrepentant people in God's kingdom. Right? Jesus demanded recognition of sin in a response of repentance, turning from sin for all who desired salvation. And he even, Jesus took it a step further and said that sinners had to repent or what? Perish. Right. Repent or perish. So the repentance and confession of sin that he demanded was so strong that it required total self-denial, hatred of self, uh uh-oh, which made coming to salvation way too demanding for some people. So Luke 9, 23, right? If anyone wants to come after me, he has to what? Take up his cross daily and then deny himself. You know, that, that word deny is a very, very strong word that flies in the face of what our society believes in today, right? The self-esteem, the, the uh, build yourself up, pat yourself on the back, make your... No, Jesus said you have to deny yourself. You know, that really means that you need to disassociate with you. It means that I need to get away from me. Why? Because I will take me where I don't want to go or where I... Uh, no, it, let me say that different. It'll take me where my flesh wants me to go, which is where God doesn't want me to go, so I need to get away from me. There's nobody out there in the world that's a worse enemy 
to me than me. You all right with that? Now, I don't know what a psychologist does with that because, you know, they want me to love myself, right? Well, the scripture implies that I already do or I wouldn't do the things that I do, right? So, pretty strong stuff. And when the apostles proclaimed the gospel, they made it clear that God calls upon sinners everywhere to do two things, to admit their sins and to repent. You know, it's it's not enough just to acknowledge it. That's the beginning of it, but then we got to turn from it. So, 1 John 1, 9, it fits this pattern perfectly, right, with consistency if we interpret it the right way because there are some people out there that don't interpret it the right way. Now, we know that John is writing to believers because he says in the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, right? And, and to some people, this First uh, John 1, 9 appears conditional, right? That forgiveness is conditional. They believe that if you confess, God will forgive, and that if you don't confess, he will not forgive. Well, what does that make ineffective? It makes, now we're talking about believers in chapter 2. So is my confession, I mean, is my acceptance to God as a believer uh, dependent upon my confession? If that's true, then that annihilates the uh, efficacy of the cross, right? It annihilates it, right? So the the confusion of that can be cleared away by noting that the verse is actually a reiteration of God's faithfulness to his new covenant, uh, uh, which is a promise of salvation from the old covenant. For instance, Jeremiah 31, 34, it says, quote, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will what? Remember no more. Okay, so he's writing to believers here. So I'm not in and out of salvation as I confess or don't confess. And I actually counseled a couple, my wife and I did years ago, from another church. This guy was a pastor, and he was one of these uh, people that believed you lose your salvation when you sin. And um, he was deep into pornography. And uh, so I finally, when I learned that about his belief of, of in and out, I asked him, I said, well, think how absolutely convenient that is. You can look at pornography and you're not saved, so you're not being condemned. I mean, you're not being um, convicted of your sin. And then you can repent, confess and, and repent. Now I'm back in salvation. I said, that's just a convenient excuse to live in sin. You know, and a bigger problem with that is what happens if you die in the middle there somewhere, right? You know, then you're then you're in hell. So anyway, um, but God is faithful. He tells us that. He is faithful and, and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from not some unrighteousness, but all of it, right? He's, he is faithful to his promise. And does God always do what he says? He does, doesn't he? It's, it's our misinterpretation of what he says that makes it seem like sometimes that he doesn't, right? So in chapter 2, he writes, Your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. That's chapter 2, verse 12. And, wow, think about that one for a minute. My sins are forgiven for my benefit? Well, ultimately, yeah, but that's not what it says. It's really for his name's sake. 
So again, that strips Tim out of the way and it makes it all about God. Don't you just love it that God really is all about God, you know, and not me? I mean, what a benefit I get from it. But, you know, it's to rightly think of it that way. So forgiveness is consistent with who Jesus Christ is and what the Father promised according to his perfectly, perfectly faithful, righteous, just, holy, and loving nature. Right? That's who he is. So forgiveness is not incomplete or dependent on the saving sense of my confessing. Key point there. So, with that established, it is possible to understand the place of, now here we are as Christians, the place of ongoing confession. Because I've always wondered about that. I mean, if if my thoughts in in the past have been, you know, well, if I'm forgiven, and I am, then why do I have to have ongoing confession, right? I'm not in and out of salvation, but I am to have ongoing confession. So that's what I kind of want to clarify this morning. So the word translated confess means to say the same thing. In other words, I'm agreeing with God that I've done this. And, um, you know, when you're disciplining your children, when you've caught your kids in a lie, uh, ultimately, isn't that, or maybe in a sin, isn't that what you just really want? Just own up, dude, you know? I mean, but you, you, you've been there. I've been there in our own lives. You know, we dig and dig and dig ourselves deeper, deeper, deeper into the pit. And all we really have to do is own up. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been, as a non-believer, can you think of right now an incident in your life where perhaps you didn't do that? And, and, but you knew you were supposed to, but you didn't. You ever thought of one? Can you think of one? I got one. It's really silly, but I mean, the fact that it just popped into my mind, you know, shows how it's true. I used to be in the pest control business, and I was doing a bug job on this lady's house. Don't remember her, but the house was in Brookfield West. Back in the day, that was the affluent North Fulton neighborhood, and um, she had those kind of folding uh, closet doors in the master bedroom, you know, and they were mirrored. And I was spraying, I came around in that, you know, the pest control uses the uh, metal sprayers, right? I came around and the thing hit it and it ch- knocked off a chunk of the mirror at the bottom. And, you know, she, I guess while I was in the basement or something, went in there for something and she saw it and she, and I, I'm telling you, I flat out denied it. I knew in my mind, you know, I was guilty, and I mean, what's the big deal? You know, I mean, the company would have paid for it. It wasn't on me. I wasn't going to get fired for that, you know, but I just wholeheartedly, flatly denied it over and over and over. You know, she called the office. I told the boss, that thing was broke when I went in there. I saw it when I walked in the door, you know. But as Christians, God wants us to agree with him that we've sinned. Why do you think that is the case? I kind of just said yeah, that's right. And where does that come from? Flesh. It comes from our flesh, you know, and it goes back, depending on your age of the earth, I'm about 6,000 years, you know, thereabouts, give or take a day, but uh, maybe a little more today. But 
You get, I mean, that, it came from the garden, right? I mean, that's all, that's, we've been blame shifters ever since. I didn't do it. And I, that all God wants us to do is, is this is the first point of agreeing, you know what, God, I did that. I, I messed up. <clears throat> so, uh, believers are those who confess their sins. They agree with God about their sin. They acknowledge its reality and affirm that it is a transgression of his law and a violation of his will. In other words, we don't hide it. I mean, who do we think we're kidding, right? We might hide it from our spouses. We might hide it from our bosses. We might hide it from our kids, but we're not hiding it from God. So what John is actually saying here about confession is that since believers are forgiven, they will be in a mindset and a practice of regularly confessing their sins. So stated another way, our forgiveness is not, not, not because of our ongoing confession, but our ongoing pattern of, of penitence and confession is because of our forgiveness and transformation. You know, so when you really focus on the glories of God in saving mankind, it, it should, if, you, if we really get an understanding of that, that should put us in a mindset of adoration that is so adoring of Christ that, that we want to admit it, to show, God, I fell short again, you know, admitting that, and then he comforts us with him, you know, that's not, it's not okay that you fell short, but I still love you. Uh, said another way, God's love towards us is not based on our performance. All right, I had a guy in the program years ago that I'm telling you, he was a performance-based guy. And he got so morbidly introspective that he was just, I mean, I was worried about him, you know, because he thought that his acceptance by God of him was based on his performance. And it's not. I mean, that's a profound thing, is it not? I mean, but again, as a parent... You know, hopefully, you know, you well, hopefully, but we don't always. But, you know, I mean, in the perfect realm of parent-child, we love our kids no matter how they perform, right? Now, granted, probably someday, <laughs> well, we just won't go down that path. But, but it's not that way with our loving Father. He loves us regardless of how we perform for him. Read a book by Jerry Bridges years ago, and he, he brings this out like this, that he had a awesome quiet time one morning with the Lord and and uh, and and before he left the house, he's finished his quiet time though and before he leaves the house he got into a spat with his wife and later that day he had the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and the thoughts popped into his mind I'm not worthy of sharing the good news of Christ because of the way I acted this morning and his point was God doesn't judge you on your performance all right, so that that's a blessing. That's a real blessing uh, because we, like I said, we'll we'll get into, you know, I'll like you more if you do what I want type of mindset. And so um, stated another way, um, uh, well, I just said it. So as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, he continually produces within us a hatred for sin, Right? I mean, the more you're made holy, the more you're separated from sin, the more hatred for sin 
you really have. Do you experience that? Now, some days maybe more than others, but, I mean, Scripture is full of references of that, which when we're in that mindset, then it results in penitent hearts and a sincere acknowledgement of our sins. So the more we grow in Christ, the greater our hatred for sin becomes and the deeper our penitence is. The more we have sorrow and regret, repentance. So, I mean, think of Paul. The greatest, you know, probably the greatest Christian to ever live, right? I mean, probably was. The most devout and dedicated Christian. At the very end of his earthly ministry, what did he say? I am the foremost of sinners. What does that mean? I'm the worst that there is. I remember in a counseling uh, setting one time sharing that, just like that with a guy. And you know what his response back to me was? Well, boy, I could never say that. That guy, that dude's a whole lot worse than I am, and I'm definitely better than that guy. You know, and I, my mind was, dude, you don't get it, right? You don't get it. I can stand here before you all and tell you, if you knew what was in here like I know what was in here, you would get up and leave right now. You wouldn't want anything to do with me. Right, But I I recognize that, I understand that, and when I do, that makes my uh, salvation sweeter and sweeter, right? It makes me adore God more and more, knowing what he has done for me that I shouldn't have had done for me. And, you know, and it's kind of the same in our, uh, in in like uh, a, a marriage relationship, you know, I I often say that, you know, if my wife kicked me to the curb every time I sinned against her, I'd never make it up the driveway, right? I would be down there by the mailbox most days, you know, and maybe get three or four steps. up. Oh, you did it again. Boom, back down you go, you know. I'd never get to sleep inside. But that that's not how, how it is, right? In God's eyes, we are accepted, But we do have this ongoing confession that he's talking about here as believers because of um, our recognition of the sorrow of our sin. And Paul wrote about that in 2 Corinthians. Um, Let me read this real quick. If you want to turn there, you can. This is in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Ooh, that's what we want, right? So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance. And I missed these two words for years. Without regret. Leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So Paul uh, was not referring to feeling bad about the consequences of my sinful conduct. That's worldly sorrow. Oh, man, I can't believe I got caught again. Right? And that's characterized by despair, depression, and sometimes suicide. But what he's really describing is the kind of sorrow, godly sorrow, that produces repentance that leads to salvation. And and true believers are, hear this now, habitually confessors who demonstrate that God has not only pardoned their sin, 
sin, but uh, is also faithfully cleansing us day in and day out, right? So in spite of the straightforward meaning, uh, many throughout history have misinterpreted and misapplied the concept of confession. There's all kinds of erroneous views of, of confession. Take the Roman Catholic Church, which I grew up in. Well, yeah, I grew up in it, but quit going probably when I was about 14. But, you know, there they, they see confession as an, as an anonymous divulging of the sins of, of the person to a human being, right? Not to God, to a human being. And you know what? As a kid, mine were always the same. I lied to my mom. I beat up my sisters. I didn't clean my room. Whatever, you know, fill in the blank. You know, just something to get this thing over with. But, you know, you go in there. It's kind of like a little drive through window, you know. The little door opens, you know. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. You know, and can I have a Chick-fil-A in the meantime? But, um, you know, Catholics believe that such confession, they think, look at this as a meritorious act. Which now we're talking about what? Works, right? A meritorious act that earns the confessor forgiveness. And it's followed by a performance of, of penitence, of, of saying prayers. I, right now, I, I've said so many of them as a kid, I could rattle them off. It had the glory be, was one, say five glory bees, ten Hail Marys, and one Our Father. Right, and I mean, I'd go out there. The faster I could say it, the better, you know. And I and I could say them right now. What a shame, right? Um, that, but that's how they were drilled into me. Well, under that system, one essentially receives forgiveness based on the good works of me, the confessor, right? But it's works based, as as y'all said. But you know, I, I got to thinking about this this morning. If it's based on, and it is me doing the I have a hard time with that word, penitence, doing my penance. Um, if it's based on that, and it is, then why do I have to tell it to him? He supposedly, not God, the priest, the priest supposedly has the power to do what? Forgive. Yeah, to forgive, to absolve. Well, then why do I got to pray if your hocus pocus is getting rid of them, right? And Shane preached something years ago, I'll never forget that, and that, that actually is a Catholic term. Hocus pocus, you know. Have you ever read? I hadn't read it. I need to research that. And but I mean, what do we all kind of equate it with? Magic. Magic. Yeah, you know, sleight of hand. You know that kind of thing. So anyway, very works based there. Deception. Uh, deception. Yeah. So and but others, confession is it's psychologically and emotionally very therapeutic, right? It, the, the act of, of confessing helps people feel good about feeling bad, ensuring that they feel forgiven and then experience healing. Still others, though, they teach that confession in this verse refers only to the moment of salvation with no regard at all for sub- subsequent times of acknowledging sin. Right? So this is only you, you do it once when you're saved, then you don't do it at all the rest of your life. But if we, if we truly trust Christ as Lord and Savior, we, we will regularly admit our sins to God as the present active form of the verb confess tells us to here. And uh, perhaps, though, the most erroneous uh, view of confession 
is that believers are forgiven only for the sins they confess. So in other words, you know, if you don't confess it, man, you're, you're, that's not good, right? But if that were correct, it would mean that unconfessed sins remain with us until the judgment seat of Christ. And if that's the case, what? It ain't going to be pretty, right? Because if we go to the judgment seat with unforgiven sins, hell is what you get, right? Nobody will enter into heaven with a list of unconfessed sins hanging over their heads, right? Because the finished work of Christ completely covers the sins of all those who believe, including those sins that remain unconfessed. Now, I had years ago, I, I, actually, I actually use something like this when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody. And um, I, I start out with, I, I usually in my counseling appointments, this is going to come out in the very first session with somebody. I'll ask them, I'll, I'll preface it and say, I'm getting ready to ask you a trick question. And here it is. How many sins will God allow into heaven? And boy, you can see the wheel spinning. Well, it's either some or none. You know, and I'll let them, you know, I'll usually give them the answer, you know, but most people say, well, none. And I'll say, you're exactly right. Second question. What happens if you die with unconfessed sin in your life? And now you really see the wheel spinning. And people that don't understand the gospel, many times the first response is, well, I'd confess it right before I died. And I had a guy in the car with me one day going up 575. Actually, I don't know. I think they call it 515 once it's a, an access highway, right? But if you've ever been up as far as Jasper, we came to the stop at Highway 53 that crosses there, and, and, I, and I gave him a situation. I said, and I won't tell you what that was, but because anyway, I said, and did you just sin by doing what I just said? And he said, yeah. And I mean, God's timing was so perfect in this. The light turned green, and there's a big dump truck coming on 53 right here. And, and we're starting to go. I said, suppose the brakes on that dump truck just failed. We just T-boned. You're dead. You didn't confess that sin that you just did at the light there. What happens? And he couldn't answer it. He could not answer. You know, now, I mean, somebody doesn't have to give you the, you know, a, a detailed description of the, uh, you know, substitutionary atonement of Christ making provision. They don't have to go all there, but they do need to understand, I think, for a proper understanding of the gospel, that, that all of our sins are covered by the blood of Christ, which then makes us acceptable to God, right? You follow that? So, you know, we need to understand that um, this mindset of unconfessed sins, there's no forgiveness. There is. All of our sins are forgiven or we're not going to heaven when we die. So then let's look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. Wow, that sounds weird because we know, man, I do sin. So the Bible makes it clear that Christians, though, here's what he's getting at. We are no longer slaves to sin. And on top of that, God has given us the spiritual means to have victory over sin. Well, now there's a fundamental problem that pops into my mind. If I've had victory over sin... 
and that I'm no longer a slave to sin, well, then why in the world do I keep on sinning? Right? You can follow that? So Romans 6, though, gives us some resources to conquer the sin that still remains in the unglorified body, and there's why I keep on sinning, because, yes, sin still is remaining in my unglorified body. However, the power of that sin has been broken. I no longer have to do it. Slaves obey who? They're masters. If sin is your master, you obey it without asking any questions. If Christ is your master, we should be obeying him. But many times we get in that mindset. So Romans 6, uh, 12 through 14, Paul says, Therefore, do not. What does that mean? Don't. Yeah, don't do it. You know, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Why? So that you won't obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. You see the difference there? <clears throat> it's now our choice of whether or not we're going to sin. We don't have to. The power of sin has been broken. Well, back in First John there, John shows what a tender heart he has by starting with the words, my little children. Don't you just love that? The tender care of the apostle. You know, John was writing these things to encourage them in consistent holiness because they were regenerate people indwelt by the Holy Spirit who had been delivered from habitual sin. So we have, have been cleansed from the penalty of sin, but we still feel its presence powerfully in our lives. Right? Do you? I do, right? But when we do, we're eager to confess. There's the difference by the power of the new life in the Spirit. So he goes on in, in verse 1 and says, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So do you enjoy watching courtroom TV shows? No? Jill says no. Glenn says yes. You know, I, I'll confess, I like that Law & Order show because I like cop shows, and you get it both. There, you get the cop and the courtroom, Right? But I mean, last week, you know, the Kavanaugh thing, I guess it was the week before and, you know, going on up until yesterday, right? You know, millions, hundreds of millions of people were glued to that, right? Well, the Bible gives us a description of a courtroom that dwarfs any of that stuff. So get this, God the Father is the judge, Satan is the accuser, and every person who has ever lived are the ones that are on trial. That includes us, right? So... Um, R.C. Sproul, uh, let me read you something that he said about unjust, how unjust sinners can be justified before a holy God. R.C. Sproul wrote, quote, The doctrine of justification involves a legal matter of the highest magnitude. It involves a matter of judgment before the supreme tribunal of God. The most basic of all issues we face as fallen human beings is the issue of how we as unjust sinners can hope to survive a judgment before the court of an absolutely holy and absolutely just God. God is the judge of all the earth. Herein lies our dilemma. He is just. We are unjust. 
If we receive from his hands what justice is due to us, we face the everlasting punishment of hell, end quote. So every human being stands before the the bar of divine justice. On top of that, every human being stands there, what? Totally guilty, right? There's none righteous, not even one, Paul says. And James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. So the just sentence the divine court should hand down to all of us is eternal punishment because... Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. But all is not hopeless for the guilty because there's one more character to consider in this scene, and that's Christ, right? That, the advocate. He's the defense attorney, right? And he's a very unusual defense attorney since he does not maintain his client's innocence. You ever heard seen a defense attorney that man he's guilty judge? I mean, psh, you know, I mean, but that wouldn't go over. Well, you'd fire that guy in a second, right? He 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 doesn't maintain his client's innocence, but rather he acknowledges their guilt. And guess what? He never loses a case. He's the best that there is. Matter of fact, and he never will lose a case, and he won't take a case unless the person pleads guilty. Wow, you know, isn't that something? So using courtroom language, Paul declared this in Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who, con- who, is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died for us, rather who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And that last phrase is the key to how the Lord Jesus Christ always wins, right? For those who put their faith in him, he intercedes with the Father on the basis of his own substitution for us. And the result of that divine verdict is that believers, having been justified by faith, now have peace with God. Right? God's love and justice were equally satisfied when he accomplished redemption through Christ for us. So, look at the second part of verse 2. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, keeping up with this legal vocabulary, uh, John gives the readers here vital instruction on how divine justice relates to salvation. Um, he says... If anyone sins, uh, if you're an English major, I had to write this down for sure. The verb is an aorist, subjunctive, third-class, conditional verb that conveys the strong possibility and actual occurrence. So, could be translated this way. If anyone sins, and you will, that's how it could be translated properly. Immediately following that, though, um, that, ver- that verse 1, believers do not have to sin, he acknowledges that we will. So the pronoun that, that he uses there, also we, means that he puts himself right in there with you and I. Isn't that interesting? That he puts us right in there with himself with us. So 
Keeping with that imagery, God appears as the supreme judge of the universe, seated at the heavenly bench, judging all people according to the absolute perfection of his law, and there we all are totally guilty, right? But we have an advocate, and, uh, and he never loses. He is the perfect advocate. I think a really neat reason why. He's the judge's son, right? And, and he, he stands in the gap for us, takes our punishment, and we don't have time to finish verse 2. But if you have time later and the Lord prompts you, study that word propitiation. It's a very notably biblical and theological word that means appeasement, satisfaction. He appeased and satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. He is the propitiation. And uh, that's why we can stand forgiven at the cross, because of that. All right, any final comments? All right, well. Uh, You know, when when Jesus forgave people, he said, your sins are forgiven. Not all past sins, right up until now. Your sins are forgiven. Inclusive, right? All inclusive. What what would that do? You know, if if he were to say, oh, okay, you get a free pass till now. Yeah. And then. And now walk by the law. (laughs) We'd be done, wouldn't we? Yeah. Yeah, Charles Grandison Finney, his his theology was you lose your salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Yeah. All right, well, we'll see you next week. Drew will be back in Acts.